Workplace psychological safety is the most pressing need we have today. But do you have the tools to transform a toxic workplace into a psychologically safe one? We have a course for that. It is called From Tormentor to Mentor, Building a Psychologically Safe Workplace. With this self-study three-hour online course, you can equip yourself and your organization to understand workplace bullying and harassment. More importantly, our course shows you how to build a foundation for a safe and healthy workplace using the SWELL principle, safety, well-being, encouragement, and learning. Elimination of bullying will only work if a foundation of psychological workplace safety has been intentionally built and maintained. Go to shiftworkplace.co slash tormentor to mentor to learn more. That's shiftworkplace.co slash tormentor to mentor. Hello, Culture and Leadership Connections podcast listeners. I'm so happy to introduce you Eric Karpinski, who is an esteemed guest that I can hardly wait to interview. He's got a great bio. Let me just let you in on the secret. Eric Karpinski has been on the cutting edge of bringing positive psychology tools to workplaces for over 10 years with clients that include Intel, Facebook, IBM, T-Mobile, Genentech, and many others. That's an awesome list. He is a key member of Sean Aker's Good Think team, trained as a scientist at Brown University, and has an MBA from the Wharton School. McGraw-Hill is publishing his new book, Put Happiness to Work, which has been endorsed by Adam Grant, Sean Aker, and Daniel Pink. Those are three of my favorite authors, and I think I'm going to be adding Eric Karpinski to my <laughs> list. Really looking forward to reading his book, Put Happiness to Work. When I found out about you, Eric, I was like, yes, this is a perfect match for our podcast. I can hardly wait to meet you. <laughs> so welcome. Thank you so much, Marie. I'm looking forward to this conversation very much. Awesome. Well, why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about who you are? Sure. So I really, I love using positive psychology and neuroscience research to help people figure out how to be happier at work and to help leaders kind of create more engaged teams by focusing on specific types of happiness that motivate and inspire their teams, both to care for each other and to really go after difficult goals. So my new book lays out practical ways to make small changes in how we work every day to be happier and, and more engaged. Hmm. I love that. Maybe you could explain positive psychology to people because maybe not everybody knows what that is. And it's probably morphed a little bit over the years too. Yeah. So positive psychology is really the study of what is working well with people, right? Since we started psychology a hundred years ago, we've been focusing on the disease model, like people that are depressed or anxious or have schizophrenia, like how do we help people and get them back from a sort of non-functional state or less functional up to being okay, getting by. And what positive psychology says is, why don't we use these billions of dollars of research and our time and our questions in science to say, hey, what does the good life look like? What does life look like when we're flourishing, when we have positive emotions and we have meaning in our lives and we, we have strong relationships? What does that look like? And how do more of us get there? And so it's really the study of human flourishing and how we can, as individuals and as teams, move towards a more not just functional, but positive, flourishing kind of thriving way. 
You know, that would be great to apply to history. Instead of studying one war to the next, why mm -hmm. don't we look at the inventions, the amazing contributions of various cultures, yeah. and how society has grown and flourished all around the world in different regions and what we can learn from it. Wouldn't that be exciting? It's the interesting stuff, right? You get so tired of reading about wars, but it's fun to think about what are the good things? Like, who are the people that really made us into who we are today and made our cultures into it? And yeah, so I, I love that idea. Well, before I get into my other questions, I also wanted to ask you a bit more about you personally. Like, do you have some hobbies, interests, a family? Yeah, so I have a lovely wife. We met at college. So we've been together for 28 years. A teenager, an 18-year-old who just went off to college in January, you know, with all the COVID chaos that she's been dealing with, and a son who's a, who's a sophomore in high school right here. In, and I live in San Diego. Let's see some other cool things about me. I'm a beekeeper. So you are? I love to manage some feral hives that I've taken from people's, you know, grounds and walls and, and put them into some bee boxes and help them be happy. And, and wow. of course, you know, they give, they, they gift me some of their honey. Well, maybe they don't gift it to me, but I do, <laughs> I do take some of their surplus honey from time to time. They make enough for lots of others to share, but that is so cool. You know, I've been interested in beekeeping for the longest time. And I keep thinking, I have to learn how to do this. I want to do this. Uh, so tell me about this feral bee business. Like you're, you're taking like rogue beehives and you're established harmony. Wow. Yeah. Because the issue is like those bees can often be destroyed, right? If they're in someone's wall or they're in someone's fence or in their oftentimes in their little watering like uh, sprinkler system things, boxes. And of course, nobody wants them there. You can't function it. So I'll come in if it's accessible and I'll bring my bee box and I'll put in my bee suit and transfer them into the box and then take them to where they can live a much happier life with access to resources. And the, the cool thing is that the, a, lot of, a lot of people would kill those bees. And instead I can take them and, and feral bees have a lot of really cool, diverse genetic material that helps bees survive long-term instead of the alternative, which is a lot of beekeepers buy European bees that are purebred and things, and they can get great honey out of them. And they're really, they're much gentler. So it's easier, but it doesn't really add to the genetic diversity of natural bees, which is what I like to do. And the other problem with not having a diverse bee population is it's easy for the bees around the world to be wiped out. Exactly. There's so many problems with bee colony collapse and all these different agents that are having trouble with bees. So that's why I want to make sure we, let's get the wild strains that are out there and you know, certainly get some honey from them. But more than that, it's make sure that there's that continued genetic diversity so that when the hard things happen, they'll be more likely to survive. I'm now even more motivated to learn how to become a beekeeper. And I really like your model of preserving bee diversification by finding those rogue bees and getting them into a happier space instead yeah. of just killing them like vermin, because the entire planet falls apart without bees. We're entirely dependent on them. It's like 60% of our food comes yeah. through peas. So yeah, we need it for survival as well as, you know, just to do the right thing. Well, thank you for exploring that. That was very interesting. Let's go a little bit into a couple of incidents from your childhood, because I mean, you have this focus on creating happiness. And I'm wondering about your childhood. Was that part of your childhood or were there other incidents that marked you and made you into who you are? Great questions because they really they're really introspective questions and and you know I grew up in a military family so we would move every couple of years and it was it was wonderful to actually learn about different cultures across the U.S. We lived in Colorado, Texas, Massachusetts, the Washington D.C. area, but it also came with the challenges. I'm an extrovert, so it was really hard to have to say goodbye to my friends and then go to a new place where I didn't know anybody. After years of sort of trial and error, this regular moving kind of embedded in me, I think, the importance of inclusion. 
both because I often felt excluded at first in a new place, but also because I got good at including others. I get really uncomfortable if I don't know at least one person in a group when I'm in a place. And so I'd often seek out the kids playing by themselves or those who didn't seem to have other friends and kind of invite them into whatever I was doing. And then once we'd start playing and having fun, then then that would attract a couple other kids. And before I knew it, I kind of had my people and I had the core of my community. And that was really helpful as a child moving around. And that lesson of inclusion, I think, still drives a lot of what I do today and a lot of my personality. Seeking out the people that are on the outside and drawing them into the circle. Yeah. And then, it, then, it, then you can create your own circle. Include others, yeah. They're much more likely to then include you. And then you've got this community and it's, you know, it's not always the cool kids, but that's okay. Cause <laughs> there are a lot more of the quote unquote uncool kids that are a lot more fun and interesting than the other groups. They are. Have you been to any high school reunions? I have. I actually organize my high school reunions every year. We were supposed to have one this last spring. And that of course got delayed. So we're trying to do it in October. But yeah, it's wonderful to go back. And have you noticed any characteristics as you go through the reunions, any changes in people that stand out for you? Yeah. You know, I love when I've invested a lot in the community and my high school is back in the DC suburbs and I live in San Diego now. And so it's really fun for me to help organize and support that effort and then go and, you know, we're, what are we, 30 years out? from my high school. I graduated in 1990. Yeah. So people have made their mistakes. They've gone through, they've, you know, 30 years in, we've, so many of us have had our challenges and we've gone through our divorces or we've gone through, you know, cancer, or we've had all these different problems. And it's so nice now to go back and see how people have evolved and changed. And, you know, the people that some of the bullies are actually some of the, that were bullies in high school or have really let go of a lot of that and are just, friendly, authentic people. I love seeing a community that I knew really well evolve over time and re-strengthen some relationships and started new relationships and friendships from those events, even though most of the people live far away from where I do. Hmm. That's very, very interesting. And I'm wondering if you have an incident from high school that stands out because you were talking about your childhood, but anything from high school that stands out for you before I go into my next question? Uh, Yeah, you know, I was... um, I was the vice president of our class. So I was one of the class officers and the team had some, we all sort of ran independently. So we came together, not all knowing each other. There were some really strong personalities on this team. And I was always deemed the peacemaker on the team. I I hated unnecessary conflict. And I often saw, especially those that I saw between my co-officers. So by necessity, I kind of got really good at finding the common ground between positions and finding a shared way forward that would get the most of what we needed. And while I'm more accepting of creative conflict now, and I I see the value in it, I also still default to that role of finding where people still agree and seeking out a common way forward as a, you know, harmony is a Clifton Finder's strength that I think really resonates with me a lot and something that has been an important part of my life. Well, harmony creates sustainability. It does. So creating harmony and looking for ways that people can get along is really essential so that we can have people feeling safe and they're inside whatever group they're in. Yes. I mean, as you know, the the importance of psychological safety at work is hugely important. And so how do we create ways that people can share differing opinions in a way that's listened to and that people really can hear? And then, then obviously you go forward and you make the best decision because you've got the input from everybody, not just from one leader and everyone's supposed to nod along and say yes. That's not an effective way to make decisions. Mm-hmm. So 
from the groups that you were born into, what would you say has influenced you? I mean, you, you said you were from D.C. Uh, there's got to be a D.C. suburban culture. What else was around there that affected you? Can be anything from, can be your religion, can be language, can be social class, can be professions, uh, hobbies. You know, I'm a white male. And so I got to live in a world that was made for me, right? In America. I got to live in this place that really was designed for me. And, and the privilege that I recognize now that I had um, and the biases that I have are really important. As I evolve now as a you know, human being, as I, as I work in this space, it's so important to recognize that culture that I came from because it was so dominant that inclusion and equity is, is an important aspect. And I'm constantly learning more about how culture affects me and how I react to other people and trying to really be proactive about rooting some of those things out and going forward in that way. Well, you say it was made for you, which is true, but you were in a military family and you had to move around. So you always had to disrupt who you were in your life and it may have given you insights into inclusion that you wouldn't have had if you would have stayed in the same place, right? Did the military culture affect you? We had to move a lot, but we only lived on base one time. So that was cool because we got to dive into different aspects of life. You know, instead of just being in the military culture, which you get on base, right? Where there's just there its own culture, which we did for some of that time. But what I really loved was being just put in a local school, getting to know what living in San Antonio, Texas was like, getting to know what living in Colorado Springs, Colorado was like, how things were different, you know, East Coast, Massachusetts and DC versus, you know, the West was there was a lot of neat cultural differences that became part of my understanding that some people who, who spend their entire lives in New England or in Southern California, like my children, don't ever get. So, you know, there are a number of youth exchange programs where kids go when they're in high school or college and they spend some time, I'm trying to think of the name of this one, uh, it's not coming to mind, but they spend some time in a community in their own country, but quite different from where they would have been before. And then they spend some time overseas in a country that would be radically different, having an experience that's completely opposite in many ways. I and, love that combination. Yeah, I hear it's about a, the international one all the time, but you don't hear as much about within your own culture and switching that. And I think that they both give you a lot of value. Well, hands down, guess what people say? They say the hardest adjustment was to their own country. Yeah. That they were just overwhelmed and couldn't find ways to negotiate the difficulties, that it was very hard for them to do that. And yet when they went to another country, they were like completely open to, okay, I don't know this. I'm just going to have to learn it and find a way to negotiate it. But when they're in their own country, they're going, you know, I should know this. And it was really interfering with them being able to be in that space. And obviously that experience is hard, but, but then coming out of it and going back to your home region must give you so much insight into the, all the default cultural things that you do all the time that are so different. Mm-hmm. I think it really does. So coming back to you and the groups that you were born into, can you think a little bit harder about, you know, your family interests, what your parents did, anything that affected you that you think has influenced you? So another incident from high school, actually, when I was a senior in high school, Um, My dad had retired from active duty. So we'd been in the DC area for several years and I saw him putting the lawnmower into the car. And I asked him about it. I was like, what what are you doing, dad? And and it turns out for four years, he'd been volunteering at a group home for people with mental health disorders 
mowing the lawn, fixing things around the house, doing odd jobs for them. And I didn't know that. For four years, he was doing this incredible, generous work. He'd spent apparently a couple of hours there every week doing these things. And this kind of quiet generosity like just stood out to me. He didn't trumpet it. He wasn't like talking about it everywhere he went. He just did it. And I've always seen that he's been so good at when he sees someone who needs help, he steps up and not for the kudos, but from others, but just because it's the right thing to do. And so that really landed on me when I was, you know, a senior in high school, you're starting to figure out who it is you wanted to be and what it is you wanted to do with your life in it. And that just showed me the value of, of giving for giving's sake, not for status. That's a beautiful example. And in a culture that we live in North America, where you're supposed to always be shouting your accomplishments from the rooftops. I think Mm -hmm. that the understated quiet generosity is it's whispered, but people hear it and pay attention to it. And it affects so much at a deep level. So now you've chosen to belong to some groups, right? (laughs) Yes. Tell me about those groups. I really love this question because it gets to a clash of two cultural influences that I think seem somewhat at odds when certainly when other people hear about them but have really co-created my own leadership and my own drive. One is an Ivy League education, and particularly the Wharton MBA part of me. And then the other is the influence of the culture of the Burning Man Festival, where I've been going for 20 years. If I unpack some of that, I know that growing up, I always thought I'd be happy once I was successful. So I sort of pushed hard at every stage, right? I ended up getting a biochemistry degree from Brown, an MBA from Wharton. And I had a, my first career was all about management consulting and a venture capital and a business executive. It was, my life was always about driving forward and going after those big audacious goals and pushing to be more successful. And in that part of my life, I kind of defined success largely as the drive for prestige and money and power. And, and certainly Wharton reinforced that significantly as MBAs are, are, are known for that aspect of it. And after 15 years of this career, I kind of popped my head up and I looked around and I realized I had so much more success than I ever thought I would growing up as an Air Force kid. I was making lots of money. I could buy whatever things I wanted. I had a nice house in San Diego. I married my college sweetheart and, and had two kids. I had all the things that were supposed to make me happy. And yet I was miserable the drive for always seeking more, the next promotion, the next success, more money made me so anxious, drove anxiety. And and that that started driving insomnia, which then kind of led to bouts of depression. That's the disease of materialism. That's the disease of materialism. Mm -hmm. And having sensed that a little bit, sort of unconsciously, along the way, I, I clearly had some inkling of needing something more than just that drive for the materialism. So I spent my business school summer in San Francisco in 2000, and my roommates there invited me to some strange festival in Nevada called Burning Man. And for those of you who don't don't know it, it's like an 80,000-person art festival and what they call an experiment in temporary community (laughs) that happens in August every year. When I first set foot at Burning Man, I found a place where I truly felt I belonged. The default culture there is of acceptance and love and connection and community and creativity, where everyone greets you with a smile and a gift or a question about what cool things you experienced that day. And everything, what's, what's really just amazing about this place, everything you see there, incredible interactive art, live music, huge dancing stages, free bars and pancakes and ice cream, it's all brought by volunteers who want to give these things to you give these experiences to you. 
you can't buy or sell anything at Burning Man except for ice and coffee, but that's a that's that's completely that's a service. So you can't buy or sell anything. You don't trade. You simply have something that you want to give, and then you wander around and you just receive gifts from others. Burning Man does a great job of sort of focusing it on specific principles that are all around radical inclusion, community, gifting, and love. Hmm. And it's really kind of more of a First Nations perspective where the idea that wealth is considered the people that give the most and even teaching their mm-hmm. children to give away the thing they love the most and they like the most. It's based on giving rather than getting. And you took the getting piece that was leaving you empty and put it with the giving piece yeah. And, and from there, you started to forge a new sense of who you were, I think, didn't you? Yeah. And I was hooked, right? I mean, you, you have that kind of experience. And I was like, oh, I'm coming back to this every year. And for that first period, it was definitely my escape, right? I was still building my career. I was still doing this materialistic approach for my day-to-day. And so I was so looking forward to the complete break, the complete opposite of a place that everyone was giving and sharing and... So this first, yeah, it was almost the first decade. It was just a chance for me to step away from the anxiety of my life. And then something happened in 2009 where that was at the time when, when that anxiety and the sort of the bouts of depression were getting stronger and stronger. And I realized that MBA-driven career was really unsustainable, that I needed to make a change. And I wanted to find a way to express the values of inclusion and community and gifting that I found at Burning Man. And I'd been studying positive psychology research on my own to kind of address the deep ha- unhappiness I felt at work. And I loved how so much of that research for what was useful for people's happiness and even their productivity at work overlapped with the principles of Burning Man. That the research was now showing that by creating connection in our workplaces, by creating community, by creating ways for people to work together, that that overlapped, that you could create community in those places. And that when you can do that successfully, you also create much more productive teams. So this new career was born where I could start to integrate my own core values of inclusion and connection and social support while still speaking to and talking about this research to the driven people in my network who really were primarily interested in productivity and work outcomes, right? So there's kind of this win-win situation where if we want to get to reach our goals, that's great, but let's do it via happiness and via connection and via social support and via appreciation and via understanding people's strengths and what brings them meaning and purpose in their lives. Let's bring all that to work because now we're all going to be putting, pushing in this, pulling in the same direction because we all get happiness and our leaders get those goals achieved. It makes perfect sense everybody's hungry for community, meaning and purpose. It's part of who we are as human beings. And we haven't had much community and we really realize how much we need it now with the pandemic. That's just made made us really rethink this idea that we should go do our own thing and step on other people. It's like, I can't do this anymore. That's not going to work, right? I also think that you can't say, well, we don't need outcomes. We don't need a plan. We don't need to make money. That's not true. We need all of those things. Money is neutral. Work is neutral. It's, it, you can make money in ways that are ethical or unethical. Yeah. Either way will work. You can have a workplace where the culture is toxic or where the culture is really healthy and productive. Either one is still going to be a workplace and stuff's still going to go out the door. 
right? Yep. So it's how you choose to live and what you choose to build. And it seems to me from what you said that you intentionally chose to build a positive community where people would experience the things that you felt were missing from your initial piece of your career. Yep. In my community. And then what's even more powerful is putting those ideas into a way that other people can then adopt. Yeah. And build on them and expand so that it mushrooms from there. Yeah. And have enough information. Like there's so much great research and to be able to pull it into the little snippets of how do we make this actionable Mm -hmm. and then pull it into what I call in the book, the action buffet. All right. So there's all these great, you know, activities and exercises and habits that we can adopt that help us become happier at work. And I've laid it out, like here's all these different tools and seven different strategies. And we get to pick and choose the ones that we think are going to work best for us and that we think are going to work best for our team. And then we can try it out, experiment a little bit, try a couple times. And if it doesn't work, guess what? Go back to the buffet, go back to what all the research says works, find something else, try something else. And then once you've got the things that work, now let's lock them in. Let's figure out how do we make this a habit that we do this type of thing every week or even every day, spend a couple minutes to kind of hardwire and retrain our brains to tap into these happy things that also drive productivity and engagement. Can you give me an example? Sure. So there's lots of things that are that I think at the core are well-known things. We talk about gratitude practices. Sitting, just taking three minutes and writing down three things that are, three specific things that you're grateful for in your life is awesome. Great. Lots of people know about that. Lots of people tried it. Not as many people do it as regularly as they could get value for. And by the way, if you take that and just make sure one of those is about work, especially as a leader and someone that did something cool for you that week or that day, that's a really nice way to open yourself up to, you know, gratitude and appreciation. Um, But one that I love as a leader or as a manager is to have a habit of every time you have a one-on-one meeting, open that meeting with a simple question of what is one good thing you've seen one of your teammates do this week? And that opens up so many great things. First of all, people will kind of sputter and, res- and not respond right away. And it's important for you to not get uncomfortable and let them off the hook. But it doesn't have to be a big thing. Anything small. What, did, what does someone do something this week? It could even be in their job description already, but what did they do well? And so they'll come up with something. And then if you continue to ask it the next week you have that meeting and the following week you have that meeting, now you're going to be training them as they're going through their week, they might start looking, hey, oh, you know what, Bob, thanks for doing that project so quick. I, I didn't expect to get it till Friday. And you'll be like, this is what I'm going to tell Eric when I talk to him on, you know, next week. Right. Because what you pay attention to grows. Exactly. And, and so and, you're sort of yeah. training them and rewiring their brain to do exactly what the gratitude practice does. What Look for something good that you can share. And importantly, as a leader and as manager, it's now giving you, if you have say four of those meetings a week, now you've got this ongoing list of good things that people notice that you probably didn't notice. Right. So then that gives you feedback from the front line that you wouldn't get otherwise. Yeah. And so now you get to share that, right? Now you've got this long on growing list of cool things people have done and skills that they have and ways that they've been successful. And you can go out and, and when you see them either in the hallway, or if you have a quick you know, Zoom meeting with them later, say, hey, you know, Sarah told us how much she appreciated that you got that work to her two days before you thought you were going to. And And you just keep spreading the acknowledgement and the endorphins rise and everybody starts to propagate kindness. It's awesome. What a great example. 
Yeah, I love, so I love I, that's, that. That's one of my favorite ones from the from the book, as well as from some of the trainings that I've been doing. Oh, super! I'm even more motivated to get the book now. <laughs> Let me ask you a little bit about your temperament and your personality. Temperament you're born with. People have, sometimes have difficulty separating that from the social context. It's the nature nurture um, issue, but it doesn't matter. What do you think you were born with, and what have you grown on to yourself that would be your personality? I think this circles back a little bit to the, what we talked about earlier: the <clears throat> the extroversion and the need for people to provide energy. And that was something that I think, I think that originally I was kind of a, a moderate extrovert, but that then that moving around so much as a child pushed me to need it more and to push more and, and those types of things. So that became, I'm very outgoing. Like one of my big Clifton strengths um, things is woo. I love finding a new group of people, finding a couple of people and, and figuring out what drives them finding some commonality and finding some way to connect. Let me just ask you about this woo business. Yeah. Wooing as in like wooing the people to become friends or? Yeah. So woo is winning others over W-O-O. Yeah. In the, in the Clifton Strengths. And so, so yeah, for me, it's how do I find a connection, right? Because connection is one of my core values mm-hmm. is how do I create connection and community wherever I go? And so that's an important first step. You got to be able to make that, you got to overcome that. I don't know anybody here. And find that, have that first conversation, shake that first hand or rub that first elbow in this case, and start that dialogue so you can find that commonality and f- or find that common purpose or common um, things that you have together in order to, to create a social connection. You know, there's an interesting exercise I used to do when I ran workshops with people. It's called, who am I attracted to? You take a group of people who don't know each other at a conference, for example, in a big room, and you say, you know, um, you have uh, one minute to go stand, look around the room, and then another minute to go stand by someone you think you might have something in common with that you just mm-hmm. feel there might be a natural attraction to. And then we'll discuss it for five minutes, and then we're going to go to the next step. So you do that. Yep. People say, oh, yeah, well, we both like the color yellow or something like that. Uh, or we both have two kids or, you know, things like that. And yep. then you say, okay, now you're going to do this again. Look at everybody in the room. They're all strangers. Go stand by someone else you think you might have something in common with and try and figure out what that would be. We'll try it again. And it gets much deeper. People go, oh, we're both divorced or we both had a parent die when we were 12 or, you know, and then, then you do it one more time and it is hard to separate those people. They exchange emails and phone numbers. They stay in touch with each other and they have just spent a minute just looking for something that they can connect with, something they have in common. And that's an attractive force that stays with them. That's what you do all your life. You, Eric Karpinski, that's what you've been doing all your life. Got it. That's cool. And just to see how it steps as you get more comfortable with the process of talking to a stranger, that then it's a lot easier to go deeper. That's cool to see. Thank you for sharing that. I haven't heard that research. Well, that's what you're doing. I'm just sort of seeing it as that's kind of like your methodology. Okay, well, let's go to a time when you became aware that your cultural understandings were specific to you and your culture and not just normal. Interesting. I think a big part of that is the sort of Protestant work ethic, part of, you know, kind of a white culture that, that there's this drive to, that you, if you're not working hard, then, then what are you doing? What's your purpose? You know, I saw that it was kind of a required way I was supposed to be. And of course, when I took it to the extreme I did of constantly driving for more success and things, it, it took me well away from anything that looked like happiness. 
And so that was a big wake up thing for me, a cultural thing that like, that's not actually how you live a happy, flourishing life is to only be focused on how do you succeed more? Mm -hmm. Can you think of a specific incident? A year into teaching and leading people about positive psychology, I went into my worst bout of anxiety and insomnia and depression. You know, I was now teaching people about how to be happy and I was the least happy I'd ever been. And I think this is partially an American cultural thing is like, when we talk about happiness, we think we're supposed to be happy all the time, that there's this expectation that anytime we want, we can just be happy and we should be happy. And I was learning about positive psychology. I was like, this is so cool. I'll never have to be angry and sad again. I, anytime I do, I can just pull out one of my tools. <laughs> I was so wrong. You know, all of the work we do and the research is really clear. I just was ignoring it that there's just no possibility of being happy all the time. Happiness is a fleeting emotion. And all we can do is kind of plant seeds for it and hope that it grows, but not if we expect it to, then we're now we're destroying it. And I think on the opposite side of that, there are a lot of negative emotions that we have to let in, that we have to experience in order for us to really experience happiness. And so I talk a lot about two types of negative emotions. One is necessary negative emotions, and one is gratuitous negative emotions. The necessary ones come from you know something bad that happens to us. We don't get chosen for a team, say, or for a promotion or something else, and we're, we're sad and we're disappointed. Well, we need to go in and we need to actually experience that. We need to let that in. We can't just say, oh, well, whatever, I don't care, and pretend you don't care. Because when we suppress those negative emotions, it's called emotional leakage. It's going to pop out somewhere else. We're going to yell at somebody, or we're going to start crying in a meeting when there's no real reason to. And so we need to let those in, experience and experience those negative emotions and you know, let them have their time. And then there's gratuitous negative emotions, which are the, you don't get chosen for that team. And you're like, nobody loves me and I suck and I'm destined to be, you know, destitute and, and live on the street because I suck, you know, and, and those are the things that there's a lot of tools for. How do we recognize when that's happening? And we can reduce and eliminate the amount of times that those rumination and those non-rational sort of thought patterns really drive us into a negative space. Well, I like that distinction of necessary and gratuitous negative emotions. The necessary negative emotions are there because we need them. Why would we experience them as human beings if we didn't need them? They're often indicators. They can explain to us what we need to pay attention to before it turns yes. into a physical ailment. There's so much information yeah. in those negative emotions. Just yeah. But the idea of a gratuitous negative emotion is when you wallow in ego. And ego and self-awareness are not the same thing. So you're going to, oh, poor little me is kind of, it's just as bad as saying, I am so awesome. Everybody should bow to me. Both of those extremes are ego. But then when you start to come to an awareness of who you are and say, what do I need to learn from this feeling? That's when you come into your authentic self. I really love this necessary and gratuitous emotions distinction. It helps to differentiate between what you need to learn from and what is just you allowing your ego to just sabotage you. Exactly. Yeah. Barbara Fredrickson is the first one I heard sort of use those two terms. She's a top positive psychology researcher. And I really loved when I read that in her book, Positivity. Very useful concept. Thank you for sharing that. We're reaching the end of the interview. I want two more questions to ask you. One of them is people seek you out to work with you. They want your services or they want to do a book contract with you or something like that. What's the best way to work with Eric Karpinski? What, what things do they need to know about working effectively with you? The number one is 
give me lots of people to work with. <laughs> give me, <laughs> give me a, a team and a social dynamic that goes behind it. That's one of the most potent ways because I, I naturally flow in that when we've got a common goal and we're, and, and then give me the space to create the social connection and a positive, supportive, you know, appreciating communication and culture. And then tell me what the goal is. Tell me what the goal is and then give us as a team the autonomy to get to that place our own way. Nice. Very nice. A complete picture. Exactly. Here's your soapbox. What do you want to promote? Just go for it. We want to hear all about it. Great. My book is that like March 9th is the day it's coming out. So McGraw-Hill is just about to publish it as we record this. I love that it lays out that full action buffet that we talked about. And they're all in there in seven specific strategies for activities that'll drive both happiness and engagement. And the specific types of happiness the book creates are a much more powerful path to create engagement. Because here's the thing, most people don't care about their engagement, but they do care deeply about their happiness. So I think we touched on this before. If we can position our efforts at engagement where they overlap with activated types of happiness, with, with activated positive emotions, then we can really have everyone pulling in the same direction and create a situation where everybody wins. Every individual contributor feels happy and feels these positive emotions. And as an organization or as a team, we're reaching those goals. We're taking on challenging things and able to, to get there. So then if, if people want to buy a copy of that book, they can go to my website called the, the book website called puthappinesstowork.com. And I actually recommend people buy two copies, one for themselves to, to apply and, and to give one to someone at work who they think is already happy. Because those are the people that are going to be most motivated to use the tools in the book to help their coworkers and their colleagues come along on this journey. Um, and they're also, by the way, a great co-conspirator to help you start implementing some of the strategies with your own teams. I'm also very active on LinkedIn. And I'm working on building my following on Twitter as we're going out with a lot of cool information. My handle on both of those is just my name, all one word, Eric Karpinski. Eric is E-R-I-C, and then Karpinski is K-A-R-P-I-N-S-K-I. Yeah, I've also got a, a weekly column that my wife and I are writing called Sticky Situations, where we use positive psychology and neuroscience research to answer questions about tough situations at work. And we create a conversation there. It's not just, here we are from up on high telling you what you should do. We open the conversation to, what would you do? We don't have all the answers. We've got some great ideas that the research says works, but what have you seen work? And so the comments tend to be full of other people's stories and, and wisdom from others. And I love that we can create those conversations, right? Because there's not just one way to look at things. There's not just one right answer. So it's fun to hear that perspective. And sometimes even debates break out about, what would work better for a certain situation? Hmm. It's like Ann Landers, the next generation. The work generation or Ann Landers at work, right? Yeah, yeah, that's really good. I just want to go check all of those things out. Those sound so interesting and so useful to people right now, really pertinent to what we need. I love the way you have giving and generosity in with uh, uh, focusing on goals. Uh, it's an aspect of service that goes along with happiness that has been coming through, I think, 
you know, that when you can give to others and be a person of resources for others and they can do the same for you or for other people, that that helps to build a culture of happiness. And am I getting that right? Did that come through or did I make that up? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, Adam Grant wrote a whole book about that called Give and Take. Yeah, it's a great book. How we take a giver's perspective and we say, hey, I have this resource. Who needs it? That that is something that is so powerful in terms of creating leadership and creating creating teams that that love to work together, that enjoy each other and do great things. Hmm. Well, this has really been a pleasure, Eric. Thank you so much for sharing your life, your research, your work, your insights with the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast community. You are so welcome, Ray. This was a really fun conversation. You come at these issues from a different perspective that is really very introspective creating and I think very helpful for me. Awesome. Well, it's great for me too. Eric Karpinski is a positive psychology author and a speaker who has been on the cutting edge of bringing positive psychology tools to workplaces for over 10 years. His new book, Put Happiness to Work, which has been endorsed by Adam Grant, Sean Aker, and Daniel Pink, among others, promises to be one of my new favorite business books. Very much looking forward to digging into it, and I hope you will too. Thank you for listening. And may culture and leadership connections continue to guide and inspire your day. This podcast would not be possible without the expertise of our Culture and Leadership Connections production team. A big thank you and shout out to Mike Kurlander for audio production and editing. To Malvika Kathpal for the show notes. Bernadette Guadiz for online web and social media management and promotions. Celine Bayogo for design. And Kirsten Hoyer for website and branding. Thank you so much. Hey, Culture and Leadership Connections podcast listeners. Do you love these insightful and moving interviews published twice monthly for your listening pleasure? You may not know that it costs between $300 and $500 per month to pay for our podcast episodes. Shocking, but true. Well, now you can help support this podcast by showing your love with a little skin in the game real money on the Patreon website. For as little as $5 or as much as $50 a month, you can contribute to keep culture and leadership connections alive and healthy. Your donation is invaluable in helping us connect the hearts and minds of people across cultures and professions for happier and more humane workplaces. I know you will call on your inner generosity, knowing that your contribution is a practical demonstration of love and support. Check out the patreon.com slash culture and leadership connections page to see what subscription level feels right for you and find out about the special loyalty perks at each patron level. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N patreon.com slash culture and leadership connections. Thank you for your generosity.